Salvation Gospel with Dr. Halissa Elwine. Join us around our Shabbat dining table as we explore the Torah portion. Shabbat Shalom, first of all. This week, I kind of folded the, the theme of the, the Torah portion, Mishpatim judgments, very special Torah portion to me. I wanted to kind of weave that into our footsteps of Messiah as it concerns the power of the fox. Okay. So integrating the footsteps of Messiah, and in this case, the, we're, we're discussing the little foxes, the foxes and the little foxes. There are two kinds of foxes. And we'll talk about the difference between the two maybe next week. But this week, we want to continue with this thread of understanding who the fox is, who the vineyard is that's being spoiled by the foxes, and how this is revisited in this week's Torah portion, which is Mishpatim, or judgments. And if you're not familiar with that, that's going to come from Exodus 21.1 through 24.18. So let me read this particular passage that caught my interest because it uh, we've been talking about the power of the sword as it pertains to the fox. And we'll review that too, but let's just take this little sample out of the Torah portion. It says, you shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. That's pretty strong. You know, if we think on the, the scale of things we teach children to and not to do, on that, that scale of just kind of, you know, be nice to other people, a lot of times there's other rules and commandments that we tend to emphasize more than this particular one, which is to look at the most helpless in our society, in our culture, and to be sure that we don't mistreat them. Now, it doesn't say, you know, you, you have to sell everything you own and give it to an orphan. It's not asking you to do that. What it's asking you is that when these people make an intersection in your life, don't forget you might be that people because you were that people at one point. And again, this is it's like the Passover. It's, it's taking us back to Egypt so that every year when we do the Passover Seder, it says you shall teach your children in that day. This is what came. This is what happened to me when I came out of Egypt. You have to bring the past into the present. And you do that every Passover. Well, in the same way, every time you encounter a widow, a fatherless child, somebody who doesn't really have anybody to defend them, he's saying, this is heavy because I want you to put yourself back into the day when you were in the land of Egypt. You say, I was never in the land of Egypt. Yes, you were. This is the, the Torah's attempt to help you identify with Israel of the past, not just Israel of the present, not just Israel of the future, but for you to identify with Israel of the past. And this is why dispensationalism fails so miserably to create this sense of a common identity as Israel. 
or it, it allows a replacement theology that is not helpful at all. We're one body, one shepherd. And he says, I want you to feel as if that you were in Egypt and you were the widow and you were the fatherless child. You were the person who was being mistreated and you were the one who cried out to me at that time. Because if, if you can put yourself in their sandals, then you can also put yourself into the, the shoes of a widow or an orphan or a person who needs help, who needs your defense, not your contempt. And, you know, contempt is the first uh, very grave sign of separation when we start to have contempt for one another. So we need to be really careful about that. Um, when you begin to hold the weaker in contempt and you begin to mistreat them, it says very clearly, if they cry out to me, I will hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. So that's um, uh, a pretty strong judgment that's promised if we mistreat the widow or the fatherless child. And he links it very specifically to our being a sojourner in the land of Egypt. We have all been in situations, he's reminding us, where we needed an advocate. We needed someone who was strong to give us a hand up and a hand out because we could not help ourselves. And this is so close to his heart. This is a pretty strong promise. I will kill you with the sword. If you mistreat them, I will kill you. Uh, he takes it very seriously when we oppress the weak. And so let's, let's kind of take this because it is so strong and it is you know, I don't want to say it's out of character with the rest of the Torah portion, but it's certainly a strong emphasis on something within the Torah portion, because who wants to be killed with a sword because you did something stupid to a widow or an orphan? You know, especially young children, they can get caught up in a crowd, they can get into taunting, bullying, and these sorts of things. And if, if you pull them out of the crowd and you talk to them, often they're very sorry that they did that. They see that that was wrong. But it's very human to get caught up in these sorts of things. And he says, you better get over it before you're a grown up because I'm going to require it of you. If you're abusing, if you're mistreating those who you consider lesser, who you consider weaker, who you consider prey just because you happen to be stronger in some area. So let's go on. And, and refer again, this is a verse we've been working with as it pertains to the foxes, because again, we're working with the passage in the Song of Songs that talks about the foxes who are spoiling the vineyard. And of course, the vineyard is Israel. And this is going to help us to understand the altar judgments. As we're listening for the footsteps of Messiah, what we have to understand come with the footsteps are the altar judgments. There are four altar judgments. And if you don't know what those are, we'll, I'll get you a list here before the, the lesson's over. Uh, but Psalm 63, 8 through 10 gives us a bit of insight. You know, he's talking about, I'll come after you with the sword if you mistreat the widows or the orphans. So this will help us find an equivalency when he says, I'll turn against you with the sword. And then it talks about the foxes who are ruining the vineyards. Now we're going to be able to draw an equivalency and see how very similar one altar judgment can be to another altar judgment. A fox would be considered a wild beast. 
a wild beast or the the plague of wild beasts is considered one of the four altar judgments. But the sword is also considered an altar judgment. So here we're going to see how these two altar judgments are turned into equivalencies. He says, my soul clings to you. Your right hand takes hold of me. But those who seek my life to destroy it will go into the depths of the earth. So this is a Sheol type of experience. He's saying these are uh, not necessarily the people who are going to arise at the resurrection. These are the people who are going to be trapped in the power of Sheol. And by the way, Egypt is often synonymous with the power of Sheol or the power of Abaddon or death. You read that in in Revelation. Uh, You also read it in Exodus. You probably just didn't read it in Hebrew, so it, it didn't. You didn't make that connection where when Pharaoh's advisors say, don't you know that Egypt is Abda? Abda is destroyed, lost. And then Abaddon that we read about in Revelation is the permanent construct of Abda. It's a place of permanent destruction, a place of being permanently lost. And so as the psalmist is writing, he's saying, okay, these people are after my soul, but my soul is going to cling to you, to the Holy One. Your right hand takes hold of me. Right hand is often a reference to Messiah. But he's saying, these who are seeking my life to destroy it. So think of this in the context of the Egyptians who were seeking the lives of the Hebrews to destroy them, especially the baby boys. He says, they will go into the depths of the earth. They have been trying to keep me in the depths of the earth. In other words, if, if we think of the power of Abaddon, they've been trying to keep me under the power of death. But he says, they will go into the depths of the earth. They will be turned over to the power of the sword. They will be a prey or a portion for foxes. So we're looking here at an equivalent expression. If you're not sure what an equivalent expression is, it's two things that are compared in scripture. And we can say they have equivalency, but they're not identical. They're not equal, you know, in a mathematical sense. This is not equal to this because each has its own identity, but they're, they're similar enough to draw an equivalency and to say this thing is like this thing. In this particular context, he's telling us that the power of the sword is like being a prey for foxes. So being a prey for foxes, that was the experience in Egypt. Israel was a prey or a portion for foxes until there was an intervention. And when they cried out, just like it says in the Torah portion, when they cried out, To Adonai, he answered them. And then he turned the Egyptians over to the power of the sword, pretty much just the way the the Torah is telling us right here in Exodus 22, 21. And so, you know, he says, pretty much based on the scripture, he can say, I can heard that I heard the cry of the Israelites against the Egyptians, and then my wrath burned. And then I began to kill the Egyptians with the sword. And then the wives and the the children of the Egyptians became widows and orphans. So that's our example. And that's why it makes sense then, as we're continuing looking at the symbol of the fox, 
how being turned over to the power of the sword is an equivalency to becoming a prey for foxes, right? It's a portion, what is apportioned to the fox, kind of, I wouldn't call it a play on words, but it's definitely a play on theme. So if the power of the sword is an equivalency to falling prey to a fox, then as we draw that connection, we've got the Egyptian foxes who are preying upon the Hebrew children. And we know that the fox's motivation was to preserve his territory. If you'll remember in the text, as, as you go back into the story of when things changed for the Hebrews, then it was when there was a Pharaoh arose who didn't know Joseph. And this Pharaoh is very concerned about the Hebrews. They did have a reputation as being great warriors. Look at Shimon and Levi, for instance, and Abraham, you know, how they could wipe out whole cities or armies practically single-handed. So they had a well-earned reputation as being great warriors. And this Pharaoh's concerned that a foreign nation might invade and the Hebrews would team up with them and the Egyptians would lose their territory. So the, the fox's method is more of a prevent defense. He becomes aggressive in order to prevent losing his claim to a particular place. The, the ultimate punishment for the fox, for Egypt, was to be sent into the abyss. So the fox who preyed upon Israel became prey for the fox. Now, I hope that kind of sorts through Psalm 63.8 for you. If, if your design was to prey upon the Israelites, specifically the vineyard and its blossoms or its youngest children, then your punishment eventually would be also to be sent to a place to be preyed upon. And how does that happen in the abyss? How does that happen in Abaddon? There's passages in the prophets, and I didn't, I didn't take time to look these up for you. Uh, you can look them up pretty easily. But it does talk about particular kings and rulers who, after they die, they descend down to Sheol. And there's other rulers already down there. And you can hear them kind of having these, these figurative conversations about how, you know what, you're just going to turn into a bunch of worms like we are. So the idea is the fox is going to the grave of a fox um, in terms of predator going down into a place of predators. And, you know, you might think you're a pretty good predator until you're surrounded by them. It, it can change your, your idea of your predatory skill when you're surrounded by those who might actually be superior. So here's our working text uh, from the Song of Songs. Catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards, while our vineyards are in blossom. And again, this, this is using repetitive language in chapter 2, verse 15 of the song. You've got dual use of the foxes. You have foxes and you have little foxes. Uh, in a future lesson, we'll look at the identity of at least two, probably more of the foxes in history that are recorded in the Bible. And they follow the fox pattern exactly. And you'll find out there can be both male and female foxes. It's, it's not gender exclusive. It is definitely gender inclusive in terms of the examples in scripture. So anybody can be a predator. 
anybody can fall into this particular pattern. So you've got a dual use of foxes, foxes and little foxes, and then you've got a plural. It's more than one fox. When you see the plurals like this, or when you see a repetition of the example, the fox, then that can suggest to you, if you're a student of prophecy and you like to to look for devices of prophecy to remember and to use later, sometimes what this is suggesting to us is that this particular prophecy may be fulfilled at more than one time in history, and it might be fulfilled in multiple locations just because of its plurality. So the, the guiding principle of these additional fulfillments, whenever they happen, we know that the, the proto-prophecy, of course, is contained in Exodus, that Egypt is seen as the fox preying upon the Hebrew babies. This is why it's, it's referred to as the blossoms in the vineyard, because the blossoms are the youngest. They're not fruit yet. They just hold the promise of mature fruit. And so these little foxes are able to go in to, and to pluck the blossoms out of the vineyards from the birthing stools and failing that to take them to the Nile and throw them into the Nile. So this, this young nation of Israel is going to be the, the proto-prophecy, again, of the vineyard in bloom. And that bloom is thought to be their promise of repentance from idolatry. Sometimes we forget how far Israel had fallen into idolatry in Egypt. It wasn't like the Hebrews were holy and righteous and wonderful, and the Egyptians were horrible, awful idolaters. They were all idolaters. You can read about that in Ezekiel 20. And so this wasn't just a, a rescue from the clutches of Egypt. This was a rescue from idolatry that they should have never descended to. And they weren't ready to give it up, some of them. We, we see that in their wilderness journey. There were still some among them that even though they had given the blossom or the bloom of repentance, they promised that they would bring forth fruits worthy of repentance in the future. As they move into the wilderness, we realize, well, you know what? They might have promised they would bring forth fruits worthy of repentance, but they will not because they're going to worship this golden calf, because they're going to commit idolatry with these Midianite women. And so the wilderness journey became one of, of plucking out the, the blossoms that the fox didn't get them. It's just these were false promises. In the vineyard, they never intended to give up their idolatry. But that's our kind of our proto-prophecy. Can we say that this would also go all the way back to Genesis and to the Garden of Eden? I think so. I think it's in its earliest form. The serpent represents, of course, the wild beasts, beasts of the field. He's not a fox, but he does represent the prototype, the, the wild beast. So there's prophecy within prophecy sometimes in the Torah, and I don't know why we don't start looking for it till we get into the prophets, but this is the best place to, to find the, the principles and the patterns of prophecy, okay? So the, the promise here was measure against measure. In Hebrew, that's midah keneged midah, and that just means that whatever you thought to do to someone else, whatever you were planning to do to them, that's the exact same judgment that will be measured back to you. 
And this goes with what the psalmist was saying. If if you have played the fox, then you are going to be turned over to the power of the fox. If you have prayed with the sword, then you will be returned to the power of the sword. And this is what we have to be aware of as, as we're beginning to listen now for the footsteps of Messiah. The more we need to look to the Song of Songs as prophecy, not just a love song, not just a song of resurrection, but also a guideline that's going to tune our ears to the things we might observe. Remember, we want to be wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove. Serpents even have a remarkable sense of smell, by the way. They can sniff things out. They can even feel vibrations in the ground. And so as our ears are being tuned with the Holy Spirit to the word, we're going to pick up on some clues that the rest of the world is not going to pick up on. We're going to sniff some things out by the spirit. We're going to feel some vibrations in the earth. We're going to hear things they don't hear and see things they don't see. And this will occur more and more as you go back and do like the Song of Songs is doing. As you, we've seen some of the symbols, we realize once we unpack the symbols, it's pushing us back to the exodus from Egypt to help us understand the events that will occur alongside the footsteps of Messiah and to even help us prepare for the footsteps, even preceding the footsteps of Messiah, to hear those vibrations of his footsteps before we actually see him on the mountains. And so this is why we're we're still looking at the fox uh, as a pattern to be learned in the exodus from Egypt. So, you know, if you get the newsletters, you understand that we're going very, very methodically through these verses about the fox. So the psalm reminds us that in this measure against measure pattern of punishment, if the fox, if Pharaoh designated the Hebrew boys to the Nile, then by same measure, the fox, Pharaoh, and those who followed him were to be designated to death, to be trapped on the dry land in the Sea of Reeds, and then, of course, to be drowned in the Sea of Reeds. So you want to drown baby boys, then he will drown you. That's the message. And that's why I say, don't worry too much about all the conspiracies in the world. You just have to understand how the father works measure against measure by whatever plan they plan to entrap the righteous or to prey upon the widows, the orphans, the weaklings, by those same methods, they will be trapped. By those same methods, they will be destroyed. It's our job to believe that. It's not our job to make it happen. That's in the hand of the Holy One. But it's our job to believe that no matter what their method is, that it will eventually lead them to their own destruction. So let's let's unpack this a little bit more, where the psalmist is explaining to us how they will be being turned over to the portion of foxes, this measure against measure idea that he equates with the power of the sword. So he says they will be turned over to the power of the sword. A sword in Hebrew is cherev, cherev. And the sages look at this and say, well, you know, the the dry seabed is also called charvo in Hebrew. Now, it may not use that exact term in the text. There's another term that's that's used that means dry land. 
But again, this is an equivalent expression. It's kind of a play on word. So it says they were lured into the dry bed, into the charvo of the sea in order to receive their portion. They were about to receive the portion of the fox. The fox was about to receive the portion of the fox. And the shoresh or the root, again, of charav or charav, you hear the similarity in the sword in the dry bed of the sea? It's charav. Charab. And it has several meanings. Uh, one of them does mean sword, by the way. If you hear somebody, you know, if you're reading in scripture and you see the sword and you see that that's cherev, then yes, it's definitely a literal sword made out of metal. But there's additional meanings that seem to be unrelated to a sword, but they are related to the sword. We're going to see how they are related to the sword. Remember, charvo was the, the dry seabed. Another meaning of charav is drought. Another meaning of charav is ruin and destruction. Another meaning of charav is dryness or dry land, the parched earth. So if you look at the power of the sword, can the power of the sword literally be, you know, somebody taking up a weapon against another person in order to destroy them? Absolutely. That's its most literal meaning. But you have to read other possibilities in there that the power of the sword can also be linked to things going dry. It can be linked to drought, the lack of rain. In, in a previous lesson, we looked at the number of years of famine that would be associated with the footsteps of Messiah. And so this would not just be considered the power of famine, it would also be considered the power of the sword, the chirav, because of the chirav. So now you can see how these two altar judgments of sword and of famine would be linked. Because once you dry the, the earth, then what's going to set in is a drought. And then ruin and destruction will set in. And often this, this ruin and drought is followed by uh, wars or battles, the sword. The sword it, in battle often, what the soldiers will do, or, or even people who are retreating, they will set fire to the crops, or they will destroy the crops, or they will slaughter the animals and eat them. In, in other words, they will destroy any edible thing. And then there's nobody there to replant. And so it's a, a kind of a, a domino effect. In the case of the plagues, there was one particular plague, which was uh, the lice, I believe. The sages looked at that and said, that is the equivalent, you know, because the lice would pierce and penetrate the skin. They're like teeny tiny little swords or arrows. And these are like when you lay siege against a city in ancient times, there were different stages of the siege. And of course, if you enclose the city, you're going to cut off food. It's, it, they can't get out and they can't work their crops. The crops are going to dry up. There's nothing to replace it with. And then once they, they get the, the city sealed off in waves, they will use different weapons as they're, they're waiting for the people to get really hungry and want to give up. One of those is they'll just launch thousands upon thousands upon thousands of arrows over the city wall. They're completely random. 
They're not looking at someone because nobody's going to be dumb enough to show their face over the wall. What are they doing? They're just having as many archers as they can muster at one time, just launch all these arrows uh, or the, the flaming, what do you call it, from the catapults? I forget what the word for it is. Launching these things over the walls. And it's just to, to spread terror. Uh, some people might be hit by the arrows. They happen to be walking in the wrong place at the wrong time when the arrows came down. And they said the lice is one example of this sort of siege because in a much smaller way, of course, but they still penetrated the skin of the Egyptians. And so it was like the, the 10 plagues were like multiple waves of siege in order to bring the city down. Of course, the plague of locusts, that would have laid every green thing. What would happen then? Dryness, dry land, parched earth, drought, ruin and destruction. Uh, Egypt was a pretty bare place by the time the Israelites left. They were going into a dry wilderness, but it sounds like they were leaving one too. And if, if the Nile didn't flood in time, then they were going to be in big trouble. The Egyptians would have a difficult time recovering at all. But in this respect, we can look at this pattern and we can see that the, the Israelites were brought to the Reed Sea and there the Egyptians are going to be drowned. They are going to suffer the judgment of the sword, i.e. the dry bed of the sea, i.e. ruin and destruction. And so even though not one Israelite had to draw a sword, the Holy One drew them into this particular judgment of cherev or sword. And again, that's the portion of the fox. You want to destroy baby boys in the water? I will destroy your grown men in the water. And so in this respect, in this journey from Egypt unto Mount Sinai, it's also, Mount Sinai is also referred to as Mount Horeb, Mount Horeb. And you hear it in Moses' encounter when, before he knows he's a deliverer or anything else, of course, he encounters the burning bush on Mount Horeb. And he's told, you know, you're going to return to this place and you're going to worship me here on this mountain. This is going to be a sign to you. Why Horeb? Why does it need another name other than Mount Sinai? Well, Horeb demonstrates to us that this is a mountain of testing. This is a, a mountain where there can be drought. This is a mountain of sword, ruin and destruction, dryness or dry land, parched earth. He's bringing them to the most parched place on earth, relatively speaking, in order to rain down on them and show that just like he had the power to ruin the Egyptians at the Sea of Reeds, the power to ruin the Egyptians in 10 plagues, he can bring an Israelite to Mount Horeb, which should be the most ruinous place on earth. And he can take you to the most ruinous place on earth and reveal himself to you. And he can saturate you in the water of the word. And, and what you're experiencing is completely different. You're not experiencing the drought and the sword and the ruin and the destruction and the dryness and the dry land and the parched earth. He has brought you to the place of the word. And instead of feeling very thirsty, as you encounter this dry place, you will find that you are absolutely saturated and swimming in the word. 
that your thirst is satisfied in this place. He's showing you that he has dominion. He has power over ruin and death with his word. He can take you to the driest place on earth. And if he reveals his word to you, it's as if you were in the deepest rainforest on earth because of the word. He's showing you in these dry places that his word is the opposite of that. Just like he could take the Egyptians to a wet place, to a dry place, to a wet place. He can take you from a dry place to a wet place. See how it's all in his hand? You just have to believe in the power of the sword. So what is this dry parched judgment? What is the power of the sword? Well, again, it it goes back to the foxes being drowned in the water. They were drowned on the dry land, on the charvo. But the sword, it meant to be dry, parched, and thirsty. Think of Yeshua's parable of the rich man and Lazarus and the rich man's experience after death. This is what we mean by there's a a power of death that um, preys upon the wicked. And in this particular case, the rich man's experience was dry, parched, and thirsty. Also worry, right? But to be dry, parched, and thirsty, for Yeshua, this characterized the experience of death for someone who was separated from Elohim, for someone who was separated from Abraham's bosom, which is understood to be the place at the base of the altar the heavenly altar where the souls of the righteous are collected and they're cared for and they're nurtured until the resurrection from the dead. But see, if you're not nurtured there at the altar, then that altar has actually decreed upon you a completely different experience, which is to be dry, parched, and thirsty. And so now you can see why the sword has such a deeper context as a death judgment. It's not just to die by the sword, but it's the introduction of dry conditions. And so as you look at the the four altar judgments in Revelation, represented by the four horses of Revelation, you can see as you look at these symbols that it might be way more than, say, just looking at the sword of the red horse rider and say, well, war is coming. I believe that's true. But I also believe it's way more than war. Because if we look at what's represented by the sword, Cherev being a, a hot, dry, parched place, we can see that this, ho- this horse, as he is released, is also initiating the dry conditions of famine. And this is a famine that leads to death below. The the rich man's experience of death, the Egyptian's experience of death, being separated from the presence of Elohim and experiencing the sword as being dry, parched, and thirsty because they're separated from the word. They didn't go to Mount Sinai. They didn't go to Mount Horeb and say, we will do and we will hear. They said, no, we won't. We just want to control you. We want you to come down with us. But As the red horse rides out, and I'll show you a graphic here in a second. As this red horse is riding out, his rider is holding the sword. But what is this going to lead to? This is going to lead to the famine of the black horse that is next to ride out. 
And again, this is going to be that dry portion of the foxes. So you can see as each individual horse rides out, uh, the first horse, of course, is the white one. Then we see the red one come out. He has the sword, this dry, thirsty sword. And then what does that lead to? It leads to the black horse. And as the black horse comes out, the writer is describing the conditions of famine, of economic failure, where you would work for a denarius, which at the time this was written, represented one day's income. So the food that, that you earned, it took you all day to earn that day's food. You could never get a hit. That's the implication there. Why? Because a type of famine, not just a physical famine, but a famine of the word has set in on the earth. So this is in this way, you can kind of see <clears throat> the significance of the sword. Uh, in terms of being more than just war, right? So Churif, Mount Churif, Mount Sinai. This is going to be another name for Mount Sinai. It means desert. It's a dry place. Um, and it's located in the Midbar, in the wilderness. So what's going to happen here is Mount Churif is going to block the way to the land of Israel from Egypt, right? In the same way that the Sea of Reeds blocked the way for the Egyptians because they were preying upon the weak and the helpless. Now the Israelites have escaped that particular altered judgment, but now they have been brought to Mount Chorif. And remember, Chorav, it means to be dried up uh, like waters or rivers. Um, to become arid, to be desolate, to be laid waste. And so Israel is brought out of Egypt, which, by the way, at this point would be also desolate. They're brought to Mount Horeb, and they're brought to another desolate place. Well, as they get into the wilderness, they begin to long for Egypt, even though he destroyed everything back there that they might compare it to. Um, instead, they start complaining about the cucumbers and the leeks and the melons and so forth. And their short memories, they, they've kind of forgotten that he judged all that stuff. He took that away from the Egyptians, too, <laughs> before they left. And so he brings them to Mount Horeb. And he says, you know what? In the same way that I delivered you from this desert of Egypt, once I got done with it, I'm bringing you to a desert place. I'm bringing you to a desert mountain to show you that your ability to be saturated does not depend upon the natural earth. Your ability to be saturated depends upon your acceptance of my word. If you will accept my word, even in this driest place, then you won't be dry. You won't be arid. You won't dry up. You won't be laid waste but I have to block your way right here to find out whether you will or will not accept my word. Because remember the whole goal wasn't just to take them back to the physical land of Israel. The goal was for them, for this to be a kind of a resurrection from the dead. And so he could actually lead them back into the garden, lead them back into immortality, and they could experience the land of Israel 
as it is married to the Garden of Eden, as it was before Adam and Eve were driven out. He wants to bring them back in. And just to reference that, it says, so he drove the man out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword. The flaming sword is called lehacherev, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. In other words, he's describing east. And you say, well, what is east then? How can it turn in every direction? Well, the cherubim are stationed at the east, but the quality of the sword is that it can turn in every direction, north, south, east, west, up, down, backward, forward, it doesn't matter. It can turn in any direction to guard the way to the tree of life, just like the description of the heavenly chariot. It could go in any of four directions without turning. And the heavenly chariot, you know, it's described as the wheels of the throne, right? And, you know, in in the Jewish literature, the understanding is that this Garden of Eden, the lower garden, was uh, a mirror. It was was based on an upper garden where the Holy One ruled and reigned. And so basically, the, the wheels of the heavenly throne would have been located in the Garden of Eden. And then the river flowed from beneath the throne down into the lower garden. And so you can see why the chariot wheels, as it describes the the rivers of Eden, the rivers of Eden are described as as savav, which means circling. They circled the garden. So in the garden, you're living in existence where you can go in any direction without turning in order to execute the will of the Holy One. You're, you're in the wheels within the wheels. But Adam and Eve were sent away from the garden. They were sent east. Well, Moses brings the Israelites to a place that would be, in the physical sense, west of the garden. Uh, maybe southwest, depending on, I know people want to argue about where the Mount Sinai is located. I don't it, If scripture doesn't tell you exactly, there's a reason you don't need to know, right? Just like the bronze serpent, you don't need to know uh, because we get into all sorts of crazy stuff. We start emphasizing the physical place over the spiritual principle. Um, But the spiritual principle here is that there were cherubim here holding the sword, or maybe they weren't. Um, They were guarding the entrance to the garden, but the flaming sword seemed to have a life of its own because it could turn in every direction. Perhaps the two of them were somehow at the same time holding the sword. If we go back to the Ark of the Covenant, we might get an idea of how that worked, but they were holding or they were there stationed, it says, with the cherub, the flaming sword. And so you couldn't get back in the garden. You'd have to go past that flaming sword, which would not allow you to do that. So the Israelites come out to Mount Horeb. They are coming to a flaming sword in the wilderness. Remember the fire and and everything that, that fell down with the giving of the 10 words? Well, that's what they encounter. They encounter the flaming sword in the wilderness. And he says, hey, If you will accept my word, I'm going to test you. If you'll accept my word, 
then you can come back into the garden. I don't want to keep you out. My plan was never to drive you out and never let you come back. I'm trying to enact a plan here. And the Hebrew word that describes how Adam and Eve were driven out is garash. In modern Hebrew, if, if a woman is a divorcee, she's called a grusha. Um, but garash can mean divorced or sent away. We don't know if he literally divorced them and put a certificate in their hands or if he just sent them away and they were never 100% divorced. It sounds like they weren't because he's trying to make a way for them to come back. And so at Shavuot on Mount Sinai, on Mount Chorev, the Israelites are once again betrothed and they're shown the way back into the presence of Elohim. The way back in was their acceptance of the covenant. They said, we will do and we will hear. We accept the rules. We accept the rules and the responsibilities of living within your covenant, of living in your word. And uh, the sign that was given to them at Mount Chorev, in this flaming dwelling place of the word, the sign of that relationship was the Shabbat. That's Exodus 31, 13, Ezekiel 20, 12, Ezekiel 12, I mean, excuse, Ezekiel 20, 20. You can go all through Ezekiel chapter 20 and see how the rebellions were, they didn't want his Shabbat. They rejected his Shabbat. And he's saying, this, this is the sign. You want to come back in. I'm showing you how to get there because your Shabbat is going to tell the condition of your heart as it concerns his words. Um, is it any coincidence we light two candles and there were two caravim? I don't know. Uh, you can light more than that for sure. Some people light more. They light you know, one for every child. But typically you have at least two. Why? Because Shabbat's the sign of going back into the garden. So you've got these two caravim there with the flaming sword to keep you out. Shabbat says, I intend to go back in because I intend to do and to hear his word. Um, so again, if we think about the two caravim and that sword turning every which way, like the the chariot wheels of the throne, uh, the living creatures that Ezekiel sees, it reminds us again of the, the lesson we did on the four winds, how the encampments of the Israelites in the wilderness, in that dry place, it was designed to evoke a vision of the, those fiery rivers of Eden, that heavenly chariot, the one that's associated with Elijah and the resurrection, because wherever that chariot goes, it's because that's where the spirit of Adonai is going. In the same way, the Israelite encampment, wherever the spirit went, when the ark and the pillar of cloud got up and moved, they moved too. They followed wherever the spirit went, whether it was a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud. They followed that. Um, and again, fire and water, these are both symbols of the spirit. So it wasn't just a dry, empty word. It was a word on fire and it was a word saturated and water. And as long as they would follow, they would never lack water. They never would. So um, in this graphic here, I think you can get a little bit of an idea, perhaps, of how the rivers of Eden worked, according to the description in Genesis, and how it would be possible 
to go in any direction without turning. Uh, we would have to be able to see into the spiritual realm to understand if this is exactly how it worked. But as I understand it, um, NASA has something similar to this. And if you're in the middle of that, then you really don't have a sensation of movement. It apparently feels very stable in there. Um, maybe that's just a, a little hint we have of what it might be like to be able to cross um, over the rivers of Eden, to be able to go past the two cherubim and the flaming sword that turns every which way. Because you can see, you know, as Ezekiel would reach into the chariot wheels, how dangerous that might be if, if you're not really prepared for that. If your mind and heart is not one of obedience, uh, you can see how the, the judgment, the four altar judgments, would so easily consume you. Um, so the power of the sword, it's there to test anyone who is seeking the crossover into the garden. And again, he brings us to Mount Horeb. Will we do and will we hear his covenant? Will we keep his Shabbat? Uh, this is how the wilderness worked. This is how the Midbar worked. It became this flaming sword of temptation to test Israel, to test Yeshua. Yeshua even had to go to the wilderness. He had to encounter temptation in the wilderness, in this dry place, in order to cross over and to attain to his mission. We have to do the same thing today. If, if you think the footsteps of Messiah is, you know, it's, it will all be delivered and it'll be great. Don't overestimate the, the ease with which that, that crossing might occur. If they were tested before, I suspect we will be tested again in a wilderness sort of way. We will be asked the question, you know, do you want this covenant? And we will have to say, we will do and we will hear because we've encountered a flaming sword. It's one thing to be delivered from Egypt. It's one thing to be saved. It's another thing entirely to return to the tree of life because we would never want to drag our sin across the wilderness and return to the land in a state of, of willful sinfulness. And so it explains why Moses tells the people in Exodus 20, 20, he says, don't be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, and in order that the fear of him may remain with you so that you will not sin. We're told very specifically, when we go into the wilderness of the people, we're going to be tested. He tested us in Egypt and brings us out. Now he brings us to the wilderness. He brings us to a fuller encounter with his word beyond a blossom. Now he's saying it's time to bring forth the fruits that are worthy of your repentance. Let me start to see some, some real grapes out here because I'm going to water you and saturate you with my word and you're going to bloom out here no matter what the natural physical conditions look like. That's an encouragement. And we're told in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, even penetrating as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. In other words, in the wilderness, you can't fake it. You've encountered something very powerful when you encounter the Torah. So we have to prepare with that 
sobriety, that that high degree of sobriety, that, you know, the, the giddiness of being saved from death, that's important. That joy is important. But then we have to become a disciple of Yeshua to be able to prepare to penetrate past Mount Horeb, to, to make it across the wilderness and then to cross over into the garden. And so in this meat bar, we're going to encounter temptations. We're, we're going to be presented with the covenant again, just to affirm our intentions uh, that we do intend to bring forth full fruits of repentance. And he's going to lead us in the wilderness to test us, just like John predicts in Revelation, where the woman's taken into the wilderness to see if she will maintain her testimony of Yeshua and the commandments of God. If so, then there's no reason that you can't go up like Joshua and Caleb, because the power of the sword guarding the garden is the word itself. That's the power of the sword. It's, it's the flaming word that Yeshua represents. It's the flaming word that Moses saw in the bush on Mount Chorev, and later Israel sees it. So we have to embrace this opportunity to come to Mount Chorev one more time and to say we will do and we will hear. We embrace this flaming sword and it will become for us a place of water that will not drown us. It's fire, but it won't burn us. And we will do and we will hear. Thank you for exploring the Torah portion with us. For more information on this ministry, go to thecreationgospel.com. You can find links there for our newsletter, books, workbooks, Facebook, and our YouTube channel.